Welcome back to the highway with Kyle Shutt. I am Kyle Shutt, and I am so proud to announce Mr. Ben Ward, the lead singer of one of my favorite bands, Orange Goblin, on the program today. The baddest band from the Great Britain. We're going to talk about being lifers for rock and roll, meeting our heroes, getting all crazy messed up on alcohol and drugs. Don't let your kids listen to this one. If you like what you've been hearing on the program, hit that follow button, push on that subscribe tab. You do anything you got to do to make sure that you don't miss a single episode. And if you want to go one step further, you can find us at patreon.com slash the highway. Get yourself some rad perks like early access to next week's episode, a virtual guitar lesson from me, help me put a six pack of beer in the fridge, all kind of stuff over there. Go check it out. We also got to give some mad love to our sponsors, Heil Sound, because if you like the way I sound, it's because there's a Heil right here in front of me. Some people want to talk about Bach, but I want to talk about rock. Let's do things my way. The Highway. How you doing, Kyle? How's it going? I'm doing fine. God, it's good to hear your voice. Yeah, you too, mate. You too. It's been a while. <laughs> it's been too long. I know. I was trying to think the last time I saw you, I think it was back in 2015. I think that was the last time that uh, the sword actually made it over to, yeah. to London. I think it might have been, yeah. The Underworld that time. Oh, man, The Underworld. <laughs> yeah. I, I, that's one of the things that I don't miss about London, I've got to be honest, the fucking smell in that place. <laughs> yeah, you're out in Cornwall now, right? I am, yeah. Me and my wife moved down here uh January and we're loving it. We're five minutes from that's the sea. Like, yeah, that's like the real medieval country, right? Like a lot of history out there. I yeah, mean we're right out right down in Celtic Cornwall, yeah, there's uh loads of old forts and beautiful like eroded coastline and tin mines and things like that it's very very old school and traditional here but i like that it's it's complete contrast to what i'd had in london for 30 years so <laughs> as i say it suits me down now i can i can be at the beach in five minutes i can be in the city in 25 minutes if i need to go and get shopping and things like that so got the best of both worlds up here yeah man that sounds lovely well man thanks so much for coming on the program uh yeah this is uh just my excuse to um uh, get some just hilarious and uh, awesome stories out of everybody uh, for lifers. I mean, y'all, you've been playing music forever. I think Orange Goblin got together in the mid nineties, right? Ninety five, something. Like yeah, that. yeah. I've now been doing this band over half of my life. Um, it's, it's it's been like a prison sentence. You don't even get twenty six years for murder these <laughs> days. So I don't know what I've done to deserve it, but no, nah, I can't complain. It's been it's been a brilliant ride. You know, we're one of those similar to how you must be, Carl. And when when you're bored and um, fans of music, what else is there to do but form a band with your friends? So exactly, that's that. Started. We were sitting around drinking too much, listening to Sabbath and Trouble, and just said, you know, why don't we have a go at doing this? And <laughs> you know, here we are, 26 years later, been all over the world and met wonderful people like yourself. So. You know, I've got I've no regrets, and I don't think anyone else in the band does because we we still love it. I still I still feel like a teenager when I'm on stage, and I I still get that same buzz that I did 26 years ago, and that's what it's all about. And the day that goes is the day that I guess I'll stop doing it. Yeah, that's beautiful, man. Seriously, uh, yeah. Whenever uh, the sword was sort of forming, um, 
kind of before we got together, maybe like 2003, uh, Orange Goblin was one of those bands that I just absolutely loved. And it was, I think it was between uh, The Big Black and maybe Iron Maiden, Peace of Mind. Um, there was this band called Hammers of Misfortune that had an album called The Bastard. I remember. Yeah, and um, and may- maybe like The Floor, a self-titled album that came out uh, in like 2000 or 2001. Yeah. It was like those four albums for me personally were just like what I was trying to like boil into a pot and like come up with something. So always been a huge fan. And uh, I wanted to ask you, I mean, you just talked about Sabbath and Trouble and stuff like that, but uh, what were some of the, the more like kind of, you know, uh, underground bands that kind of like uh, made you want to scream your head off for half your life um i guess so being being in the uk in the mid 90s there was there was a band called acrimony uh from wales that played kind of stoner rock but in a more hawkwind sort of way than than the sabbath way it was really kind of long drawn out songs with just repetitive heavy riffs over and over again i i loved them i saw them around london quite a bit there's a doom band called mourn here at the time that released their first album through rise above records um obviously electric wizard was one of the underground bands that we shared the stage with a lot in the early days um and you know with the thing with orange goblin is that we all have such diverse backgrounds chris is well, you know, we grew up listening to lots of Black Flag and Minor Threat and a lot of sort of crusty UK punk bands like Discharge and UK Subs, that sort of thing. Joe is a stereotypical 70s rock and blues guitarist dude. He grew up listening to like Albert, uh, Albert Lee and BB King and um, then like trans, transgressed to Jeff Beck and Eric Clapton and... Um, Jimmy Page, so those type of guys, and Martin and myself were always into, you know, straight up metal, Judas Priest, Iron Maiden, mm-hmm. then Metallica, Slayer, and then then more uh, death metal stuff. We we really loved, you know, Napalm Death, Obituary, Carcass, uh, and even Venom and Bathory. I was I was really into extreme metal as well. I still am to this day. So we just sort of when we got together, it was kind of a mixture of everything. And as I say. In the UK around that time, those bands like Solstice and Cathedral, obviously Lee Dorian's band, absolutely was a massive influence on us, and that's that's you know how we came about meeting him and and initially releasing our records via Rise Above Records. So yeah, it was a great deal of stuff. I was, uh, you know, like you mentioned Sabbath. That Ozzy was obviously a big influence and made me want to sort of front the band. Um, as well as Lemmy as well. So you know, there was a lot of influences in that at that time. That's rad. And I loved um, when we first started touring um, and got the chance to go overseas. I was just so stoked to meet Lee Dorian and uh, yeah. and Bill Steer and everybody. Carcass and, and Napalm Death and Cathedral were just, I was a huge fan of those bands. And um, it was, uh, it, I just remember uh, it was like 2006, like hanging out at the Crowbar and just Lee Dorian like got kicked out because he was too drunk. <laughs> I was yeah. like, was like he, he's the real deal. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Lee, well, Lee was. Lee, I mean, first big European tour we ever did was in 1999 when we, it was our first time on a nightliner sharing a bus with Cathedral. And uh, we did something like eight weeks around Europe with them. Dang. And Lee Dorian wouldn't ro- roll out of bed until about sort of four in the afternoon, five o'clock when he was due to go into the venue and sound check. Uh, sound check. And um, yeah, then, you know, after the show, it was game on and Lee can drink. Believe me, he can drink and, <laughs> and he, you know, he must partake in other substances as well when they're around. So, you know, 
he taught us a lot about partying in those early days, Lee. And he's he's still, you know, a stand-up guy. He's just opened a new record shop in London, which I can't wait to visit. Awesome. It's, uh, like, um, you know, a, a nest of all the greatest records ever made and our first presses from Japan and things like that. So, yeah, I'm keen to go and see that. But, yeah, Lee's, Lee's a great guy. And as you say... Those days, going back to the crowbar after a show and everything, that, that could have happened on any given night in the week uh, back then. Mm-hmm. Everybody and anybody used to go to the crowbar and, you know, Dave Grohl turn up, Kelly Osborne, or, you know, you guys. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd, we'd always be in there. It was, uh, it was great. I miss those days, but uh, but that's okay. It's, uh, did it move? Or I, I know the original one closed, but is there a new one? The, the plan is, I think... Um, Rich is still looking for a new location. They okay. they made the money to sort of uh, put down a deposit on a new place and and get it restarted again. Um, but when that's going to be, I don't know. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, fingers crossed. And he's looking to put a live venue in there now as well, because as you know, it was, it was tiny before. And although they did put on some bands on the little stage at the back there, they weren't really sort of a full PA or anything. Yeah. But I think that's what he's hoping to do now moving forward. Oh God, I remember uh, Jason Landrian from Black Cobra. We uh, did a tour with them yeah. uh, over there, and he, yeah. as he was walking up uh, this those really steep stairs uh, that went down to the bathroom, he slipped and busted his whole mouth open. Like, oh God, I just remember like <laughs> being way too drunk to be able to deal with anything, I've, and then turning around and seeing, seeing seen through. So many, so many people fall down those stairs; it's insane. Oh, <laughs> oh my God, it was awful. You like a death trap, especially after a few beers and a few shots. <laughs> The old days. Well, uh, I wanted to ask you because, um, you know, obviously being in a band from the States is a lot different than being in a band from London or anywhere else in the world. It's just such a, a huge area that we have to cover here. Um, and then every every band has to have a van, uh, you know, to start with at least. or And then you can maybe work your way up to a bus if you get there. But it's phenomenally expensive <laughs> to do over there. What's it like uh, getting a band together in London where it's, I mean, like, did, did you ever have your own van or did you just rent uh, things as you went along? Yeah, we we yeah, we've never owned our own vehicle for touring. It was always a rental job, mm-hmm. and you know, being in London is actually a bit, it's a bit of a blessing, um, as opposed to sort of the regional bands in other little towns and groups. Because London's one of those cities that every band comes through. So, you know, you've got promoters here and many venues that are always looking for support bands. And in those early days of Orange Goblin, we were fortunate to to get tours with like. Queens of the Stone Age, Fu Manchu, Unida, Nebula, uh, Monster Magnet. Whenever those guys came through town, Orange Goblin was the band that they called up to to support. So it helped us in a in a big way in those early days. Um, and yeah, I mean, anytime we ever went on tour, it was a case of hiring vans. Uh, I remember the first time we did the US, we did it in a van, just one of those simple. Uh, I don't know what you call twelve seater vans with a with a U haul trailer with all mm. that gear in it. Everybody trying to get comfortable in the back, sleeping on the merchandise, that sort of deal. <laughs> I'm sure you're well aware of. And it was it was brutal that first US tour we did. It was 2002. Um, we had Alabama Thunder Pussy supporting us, and they were they were great because uh, they'd done multiple tours in the US previously. And Eric Larson's well sort of well travelled guy. He helped us out in a big way, gave us a lot of advice. But we did 38 shows in 39 days. God. And it's just, that, as you say, you, the US is so vast that you can't, 
can't prepare coming from England. You can't prepare for the differences in temperature and climate and things like that that you experience. It's like we we got we arrived in New York to start the tour and it was sort of like five degrees or something. We're like, well, this is freezing. What's going on? And then <laughs> then in the space of like ten days, we're in Houston and it's like one hundred and six. The fuck's going on here? <laughs> Uh, yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit, real big learning curve for us. And actually, I think one of the reasons our, our original guitarist, Pete, quit the band was up because of that first US tour. It was just so grueling and he'd had enough. We, we came back from that and he was like, you know what? I'm out. I've, I've done everything I wanted to achieve. You guys crack on and I'll see you later. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately, we lost Pete along the way. But I wouldn't change those sort of those days, those, those early, early days of touring the hard way. You know, getting kicked out of the venue for doing coke in the toilets five minutes before you're due on stage and things like that. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't buy that sort of experience. <laughs> no, you can't. You learn a lot about yourself. Yeah, when you're just uh, yeah. <laughs> forced to, yeah, live like a wild animal. Uh, yeah, every, exactly. every day for six, eight weeks, however long it was. Fair I enough. remember uh, we took Graveyard on their first ever U.S. tour, um, and uh, yeah. yeah, it was there was just five Swedes in a van. And uh, they had no idea yeah. <laughs> what to do. It was <laughs> so fun watching them just kind of figure out how to tour the U.S. Gave them a lot of advice. Yeah, too. yeah. We we had the same thing, really. You go from these sort of metropolises like L.A. and Chicago and New York, and then five days later you're playing in Bozeman, Montana. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of four, four skinheads showing up to the stage wearing sort of right-wing shirts and things. You're like, what the fuck is this now? Uh-huh. It's uh, completely completely different but you know as i say there, there was a great learning curve for us and experiences that held us in good stead for when we went back in the in the, to the u.s uh later on exactly and uh i, I just love like the situations that you end up finding yourself in when you just keep touring forever you know what i mean like i just you, you never yeah. know where you're going to end up and like what is going to happen i think that sort of uh that's what I like to romanticize about it is just, I think that's why I keep going is just because like, well, mate, let's, let's just do one more tour. You never know what kind of goofy shit yeah. we're going to get into. Um, has there ever exactly. been yeah, any, like, uh, just any of those moments for you where you're just like, I cannot believe they let me in here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we'll have them sort of, you go to places that you never even thought you'd ever visit when you, when you were a kid. I mean, through, through orange goblin, I've, I've, been to Japan and Australia and North America and Russia and all over Europe countless times. And it's just, what, what are we doing here? Playing in places like Ljubljana in Slovenia, where you walk into a venue and there's still bullet holes in the walls from the Second World War. And going, to, going to Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland, with a name like Orange Goblin and the political situation over there was, was very uh, eye-opening. It's just, you know... Um, it, it, they all sort of mold into one, but I'm like you. It's, I, I love the the kind of adventures that you have, the unexpectedness of it. You never know what's going to happen. No two tours are ever the same. Every country's different. Everybody treats you differently, but that's the beauty of touring is you get to experience all those different cultures, different languages, different people, and see all sorts of walks of life, and it makes you appreciate what we all have. It really does. It, it's I, I've always said that there's nothing that will shatter your bias like traveling i wish more people um yeah would would, would you know hike around the world like that um i know we can't really do it right I agree. Now, I but think, still you know i think it would break down so many boundaries if people just sort of experience a bit of life outside mm-hmm. their own country well uh 
the saying is never meet your heroes, but I think that's bullshit. I say always meet your heroes, and uh, and I know yeah. you've met uh, probably every hero you've ever had. I don't know, but is uh, is there any um, either those experiences that really stand out to you, uh, or that you were like really glad that you met your heroes, or any that you wish yeah. you hadn't? <laughs> no, no, no one, no one I've met has ever really sort of been a big letdown and been a disappointment. Some of them have been just as, as crazy as you'd probably imagine them to be. Like the first time I met Ozzy was, uh, must have been around 1999. And I'd been invited down to a TV studio where he was appearing on a, like a, a rock orientated quiz show. And there was uh, like a panel that featured Ozzy Osbourne, um, I think Des Fafara from, he's in Devil Driver now, but he was in Coal Chamber at the time. Um, and a couple of other guys. And Ozzy was there and I, I got to speak to him. And I went up and asked him for his autograph, and he had to ask me how to spell orange. Uh, he's, wearing his, <laughs> he's wearing his bizarre odd socks. But he was an absolute sweetheart, really, really cool guy, and really accommodating, took an interest. Um, I think James Hetfield was the one I was probably most nervous about meeting when I first. And I think you was there, actually, is when we. When yeah, we were at the O2 did, in London, right? Um. That's not when I first met him. I met him after that, I think, when we when we did the Soundwave tour together in Australia. Oh, and that yeah. First, that first night of the tour in Brisbane, they, they held that barbecue with, with all the bands and everything, and, and like James and Lars were walking around shaking hands with everyone and having conversations. And, you know, that, me growing up a huge Metallica fan, and that, was, that was quite daunting for me, but he was cool. And me and, me and Lars bonded over our mutual love of new wave of British heavy metal, which was nice. Um, Phil Anselmo's always been a, a real nice sort of guy to us and a close friend. We, I used to worship Phil, especially when I, you know, first got into metal and Pantera was one of the bands at the forefront and everything. And he was like an idol to me. And then getting to meet him and him having a mutual respect for Orange Goblin as well was great. And I remember we kicked off one of our US tours in New Orleans, uh, One Eye Jacks, one one year and. Uh, we ended up staying at his place out in the swamps there in Louisiana, which was kind of mind-blowing. Um, you know, the first time I met Dave Windor from Monster Magnet was awesome. He was another guy that I'd seen, you know, playing in London around 95, just after I think it was uh, just before Dopes to Infinity came out. And uh, I'd always sort of looked up to him, as, especially as a, as a, a vocalist and a, mm-hmm. and a lyricist. His lyrics to me have always been amazing. I don't think they get as much uh, credit as they deserve. But so to meet Dave Windorf um, was always a pleasure. And, you know, and just as I say, it's, it's not, I, th- I think you know as well as I do that within this sort of genre of music that we, we're all involved with, you don't really get that many dicks and arseholes because they'd be fucking slapped down and told to sit, sit down and put in their place if That's they had right. any sort of evil. Um, and everybody's just, you know, appreciative of what we've got and, and loves like we've said they love traveling they love meeting new people and hanging out and we all have a mutual respect for each other's music and what we do and and that's always great i couldn't have said it better myself and, and too i don't know if anybody out there knows this but uh, whenever there is a massive uh, festival that metallic is a part of they always the day before the festival throw this big barbecue as a party to like bring all the bands together and just introduce themselves and uh, things like that i, I don't think I mean, they're about the biggest heavy metal band in the world, and they're also the most generous people uh, out there. I mean, yeah. they didn't have to do that. You know what I mean? They don't have to to do anything that they don't want to. Exactly. They, they genuinely 
are music fans and care about bands being taken care of and treated with respect. And uh, yeah, I don't think that gets talked about enough because everyone has their own shitty opinion about fucking Napster. And anybody out there, if you're yeah, on I, Napster's side instead of Lars's side, then just fuck you. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. I mean, people find it far too easy to knock Lars Ulrich, but I forget about what an amazing kind of um, footprint he's left in in the uh, in the history of heavy metal. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, take Lars Lars Ulrich out of the Metallica equation, and you don't have Metallica. You really and, don't. I mean, he yeah. he is a musician, like first and foremost. Like he he came up with a drum yeah. style that everyone. That going forward yeah. after that like has aped uh, whether or not they're better or faster or whatever you want to call it like he's very much an innovator yeah. Uh, absolutely yeah he uh you know the fact that he was just like a, a motorhead banger one of the biggest motorhead fans in the world following the band around and you, you can hear that sort of appreciate appreciation of filthy animal taylor's drums in in everything mm-hmm. metallica early days and and as you say he he kind of with kill them all they kind of invented a genre all on their own yeah for real i never uh we did get to play with motorhead one time uh but i never got to meet lemmy i was always a big bummer when he, when he passed uh, i was like oh yeah. damn it you know i've never got to meet uh willie nelson or billy gibbons and i yeah i never got to meet uh lemmy but uh you do it with him a lot uh, didn't you um we didn't really tour with them we always just met up with festivals and got to hang out oh, okay. with them quite a lot yeah. I'm going back to your bit. I actually I never met Billy Gibbons, but I met Dusty Hill a few years ago at um oh, uh, Hellfest. So I was devastated last week when I heard the uh-huh. news about him dying. Um I I did meet Willie Willie Nelson as well because I used to work oh, for asshole. a manager. <laughs> I, I actually had to restring his old guitar, the one with all the holes in it and everything. Because I worked I worked for Jules Holland's manager and he appeared on this TV show over here in the UK called uh, Later with Jules Holland. And Willie Nelson's guitar trick came in and said, look, I've got to take Willie to do something else this afternoon. Can someone here restring this guitar? Gave us a pack of strings. I said, yeah, I'll do it. And didn't realize how iconic that guitar was at the time. God damn. But, um, yeah, what was we saying about uh, the Motorhead? Um, yeah, we just used to bump into those guys at uh, festivals and things. Never really actually toured together. But the first time we met Lemmy, we'd seen them play at the Astoria in London, and there was a big after-show party going on in this place called Gossips in this really seedy little downstairs dive bar in, in Soho in London. Um, so uh, was there. The place is crowded. Lemmy and Mickey D come walking through the crowd, and our drummer Chris is standing there. Me and him are talking, having a pint, and Mickey D turns around and knocks Chris's drink out of his hand. So Chris is like, what the fuck, dude? And and like, uh, Mickey's are apologetic. I'm sorry, sorry. And, uh, and, and Chris was like, well, are you going to buy me another drink? And Lemmy just leaned in and went, he's a tight cunt. He won't buy you fucking anything. <laughs> I was like, right, okay. that's, that's an icebreaker. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, we, we always sort of met up with Lemmy after that. The, not long after that, we did our first um, US tour in 2002, what I was saying about. And we were playing, I don't know if you remember, a venue called Satyricon in Portland. Oh, yeah. And um, right outside, you got a sort of big parking lot. And there's another venue across the road. And I think uh, we saw the tour bus outside. And we knew that Motorhead were touring with Morbid Angel at the time. It was like, I'll be typical. We're playing here tonight, same day as right. uh, Motorhead are in town. And with that, we opened the van door. And there's Lemmy walking across the parking lot. So we called out to him, hey, Lemmy, how you doing? And he's like, oh. Nice to hear an English accent. And we're like, yeah, where are you off to? And he was going to this club. I think it was called the Rose Garden or something, some strip club in Portland. He was like, hey, I'm going to my favorite strip bar. Do you want to come and join me? And we we literally 
sort of walked across there and joined him and sat in this strip bar in Portland for the afternoon with yeah, Lemmy the, buying a strip. The, the Magic Garden. Yeah, that's what it was. That's the Magic Garden. <laughs> that's the one, yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't know where the name came from because it wasn't that magic. But <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know. You walk but, uh, in. Ugh, God. The, the, the last time I went into the Magic Garden, uh, walked yeah. in, there was kind of an older lady just sitting on the stage that's right by the door when you walk in, and she just had her legs spread, just laying on the floor, not dancing, nothing, just like, look yeah. at it. You know, and three three old timers just sitting there leaning on the rail, just looking at it, you know. And uh, I walked over to the, the, the bar with my two friends and I was like, oh, we'll take three PBRs. And I just sat there yeah. drinking them. And I got about halfway through my beer and I was like, y'all want to get the fuck out of here? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure. You're not sure whether you're in a strip club or a murder scene. Right. Yeah. And we walked out and, and it wasn't until we walked out that it hit me. I was like, why it was so weird. There was no music playing yeah. in there. It was dead silent. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's I think that's why Lemmy liked it because you know it's a break from the the volume of being on stage every night. <laughs> oh man! But yeah. Well, Times. if uh, if you play enough, you know, festivals and 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 you tour long enough and everything, you you get to the point where you pretty much see every band you ever wanted to see. There's only a handful of of, of bands that I uh, okay. I never got to see. I never got to see the Hives, but I'm going to see them on Halloween. Um, yeah. I, I've already got my ticket. Uh, I never got to see Prince, and that's kind of heartbreaking. But that's okay. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah. yeah, is there any 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 band that you haven't seen that uh, that you well, think that you're holding out hope for? Believe it or not, I've never seen Deep Purple live. Wow, really? Which which is incredible because I know they have played at festivals like Hellfest and like, but always been on different days from right. us yeah. being there and things. And it's just never worked out. I've got to see. Deep Purple play live. So that's the one that really sticks out for me. Everybody else I've either seen and, and have loved or been a bit disappointed by, especially recently when you sort of start to see some of the more heritage acts and yeah. uh, it's not quite what you uh, imagined it to be. It's like we saw Slade at um, Sweden Rock a few oh, years wow. ago. But, but with no Noddy Holder and sort of makeshift guy singing, it was basically Dave Hill and Don Powell uh, from the band, no Jim Lee. Yeah. So it wasn't. It was half of Slade, and it, it was a bit of a letdown, to be honest. And I felt the same way. I mean, I know this is kind of like you know blasphemy to say, but the last time I saw Blue Oyster Cult, it just seemed like they was going through the motions and and really sort of didn't have the energy for it anymore. So that was that's a that real was shame. Just... Yeah, because I know it's, uh, it's just the original two singers are the only ones left. Uh, yeah. we, we played a show with them one time, and it was—I was rather impressed. But uh, I, you know, yeah. the, you, you never know. Every every band has a bad, you know, show. Yeah, every, that's every it. Tour has I a like them on a bad night. I'd like to think so. So I'm, I'm I'm very keen to see them again. But no, I mean, apart from Deep Purple, there's not anyone I can. Really, I mean, I, I never saw the original Ramones. Who I wish I'd seen. Oh man, that would um, be cool. Yeah, and I never saw sort of the original sort of Danzig lineup with John Christ and Chuck Biscuits and Eri Von. So yeah, I kind of missed missed that boat. But but other than that, I've I've been lucky, as you say, when you tour the world, you sort of eventually you kind of come across everybody and get mm -hmm. to see everybody. So yeah, I've I've been, I've been fortunate. I've lived a good life, uh, and that's what you know. Twenty six years of being an Orange Goblin has afforded me. Isn't that rad? I do like uh, Danzig's current lineup. Is he still playing with Johnny Kelly and uh, and Tommy Victor? I think uh, Tommy Victor, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying about seeing that classic lineup, but those guys are no slouches, yeah. man. The last time I saw Danzig, I think it was at uh, in Gothenburg, whatever that festival is out there, uh, Metal um, Town, something like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, I feel what it is, the one in Gothenburg. I know, I should know this. 
<laughs> it was incredible though because i've seen danzig in the states yeah. and uh, he can kind of have yeah. a bit of an attitude everybody knows that um but whenever i've seen him in europe uh i i feel like he leaves that attitude behind and he's just really gracious to be yeah. there and puts on a, a much better show uh, than any time i've seen him in the states He's always been really sweet to us as well. Really nice guy. We, he invited us to support Danzig a couple of times. Once at the the Forum in London. Once at the Astoria in London. We did the um, uh, Blackest of the Black Tour, or whatever it was called over mm-hmm. here. And yeah. He, he was just an absolute sweetheart. And I got to meet his manager Craig McDonald a few times in LA and hang out with him as well. And he's he's cool as well. So never I've never got a bad word to say about Danzig. All these people saying, "Yeah, the guy's got attitude." And, well, I've never seen it. So. Yeah, I, I have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he pulled a, a famous stunt in Austin where uh, he wouldn't go on stage until yeah. Uh, yeah he had a a cup of French onion soup and a, a Wendy's chicken sandwich, and it was kind of a really? little tantrum or something like that. And then by the time he went on. Uh, I think they had time to play like four songs before the the festival had to cut the power, or they were going to get fined by the city for breaking the noise ordinance. And they the the festival yeah. cut the power on him, and uh, yeah, was, he he lost his shit, man. It was crazy. That's such a bizarre, random thing to want as well, isn't it? Isn't, French onion soup. It? it was weird. <laughs> I don't I don't know why. Yeah. I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to tell another one. I don't care. Uh, I'm not going to tell. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say who not- told this story, but uh, <laughs> apparently Danzig has to have this like eighty dollar like lemon drink every day. It's like some yeah. weird Japanese $80 like lemon drink, and he, but he puts it in a red solo cup and then he just kind of leaves it yeah. laying around and he gets really like, <laughs> it's then like his crew's job <laughs> to keep track of where his crazy $80 lemon hey. drink is. Hey, you know, nobody's perfect. Everybody's got their quirks, but <laughs> yeah. I've never, uh, I've never I'm, had a weird habit like that. I don't, I guess I couldn't afford no, it. I mean, I'm, I'm now trying to think of what it'd be if I'm ever going to, like, you know, pull a show because I'm not happy with uh, with my ride or something. What are the sort of really bizarre demands I'm going to have? I'm going to have to sit and think about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my lord! Well, man, um, it's always uh, it's always really cool whenever you see a band stick together, you know, as the same lineup forever. Yeah. But it's really rare, you know. And, and uh, I know you lost your guitar yeah. player a few years in and everything, but uh, Martin. Martin decided to walk away and broke my heart. But I mean, uh, you know, it's a, it seems like an amicable, uh, you know, decision for everybody and everything like that. But um, yeah, it's like, uh, like whenever uh, Trivet uh, took his yeah. exit from the band back in the day, uh, you know, it's, uh, yeah. it, it hurts. It feels pain. I know, yeah, I know, it I, I know it wasn't on bad terms or anything like that, but what was that like losing a brother like that? Um, oh yeah. I mean, it was particularly hard for me, I think, because obviously Martin and I were really close friends Um before the band even existed, we we sort of played football together when we were teenagers, and that's how we got to meet. Um, we bonded over a mutual love of heavy metal and comedy and stuff like that. So, you know, Martin was my best man at my wedding. I was his best man at his wedding. It's it's a really close friendship. But I'd, I'd known for some time that he was kind of getting a little bit disorientated with just not being able to get the time off work to tour. And he felt that he was letting Chris, Joe and I down. And, and I was like, no, nah, it's not like that at all. He's like, yeah, but you know, when you can't shake that feeling that you're, you're sort of letting your mates down. And uh, he he let us know, um, I think it was January 2019, that he, he was going to be leaving. 
And we'd always said the Orange Goblin is one of those bands that if any one of the four of us quit, then that'd be the end of it. We weren't going to carry on. And so he he was aware of that. He said, look, I, I know we've always said that, but I don't want you guys to stop. He said, you've got momentum now that you've worked hard for. He said, so um, I want you have my blessing to continue and I want you to sort of consider taking on Harry as the new bass player because, um, you know, we was happy to accommodate whoever he suggested really if we was going to do it so it was it, as you say it was all amicable and it would have mine would have left sooner had covid not struck and we'd been able to sort of um you know for uh see out all the uh commitments that we'd already had booked in 2020 obviously that didn't happen due to the pandemic yeah so mine hung around for a little bit and and then this year when we rescheduled those live stream shows he he said, look, I'm going to bow out after these because it's not fair to keep Harry string up, stringing along, um, saying, oh, when's Martin finally going to quit sort of thing. So, so yeah, those last two shows with mine happened in June and we still talk to him on a daily basis, still have a laugh with him, talk about football all the time and, and what have you. So it's it's just, as you say, it was, it was a bit of a shock because I always thought Orange Goblin would be one of those bands that, like you say, have that steady line up and, and nothing changes but obviously it does and you, you've only got bands like you know Clutch these days I think are the only one now that I can think of that I haven't had any change. I can't really think of another one off the top of my head no Mastodon yeah oh yeah 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 Still fair enough yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that's it so then. you know it, it, hasn't, <laughs> it hasn't changed anything for us we're still we're still positive for the future we've got uh, we're, we're in discussions with a record label at the moment about signing a new deal and and working on new material for a possible 2022 release so that's great to hear man seriously I, I'm just so glad that you're like picking up and keeping going through all this it's been like I mean, 2020 <laughs> sucks. Don't get me wrong, but 2021 has been the real kick in the dick for me. Uh, this year is just crazy with all the tours. Yeah. Like, like I don't know exactly when this one's gonna air, but um, we'll see. As of right now, all of our tour dates are still on, but like it's yeah. Every hour something comes in where some other band, like Limp Biscuit, just canceled all their massive tours. Like, yeah. I think like Counting Crows, Fallout, but everybody's just dropping like flies. But then you got guys out there like Jason Isbell, who are just you know pushing yeah. through and requiring uh, requiring crowds to be vaxxed and all this stuff it's just it's like I, I used to say like you know take it one day at a time but now i just i have to take yeah. it like one hour at a time it's uh That's it. yeah I, I kind of agree agree with what you said at least in 2020 it was kind of clear and we all had some direction of what was going on but now as since things have been opening we're, we're relieved to sort of have shows back and the possibility of touring to be happening again but there's no real clear uh advice from our, from our governments or whoever's in charge as to 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 what the situation really is. So things are changing on a weekly basis. And the idea of trying to tour across Europe at the moment is, is non-existent just because the regulations vary so much from country to country. Uh-huh. I mean, we're, we're fortunate here that things are open again at full capacity. And this weekend we're, we're going to bloodstock festival to, to play the main stage on Sunday alongside the likes of Saxon and Judas priest. Awesome. But, you know, I've got, I've got a feeling that, when some of these events where you've got 20,000 people spending four days together in a field and they see a spike in cases and deaths, they're going to, they're going to point the finger at the music industry again and shut everything down. Yeah. Yep. I, uh, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I no comment, but I, I will say that if this, uh, cause we're about to be on the road supporting Primus uh, for their farewell to Kings tour. Yeah. And, uh, 
if this tour falls through, like I, I, I will officially be a broken man. I don't, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. I'm gonna need some serious uh, counseling. Uh, that tour is incredible, right? And you got Wolf Mother on there and Prime. No, the Wolf Mother had to drop off. They're not oh, allowed right. to leave Australia. Yeah, everything's fucked. Oh fuck, man. Well, yeah. Fingers crossed for you guys. And I mean, getting to see Primus play "Farewell to Kings" every night is going to be incredible. I know, it's, it's fucking awesome. Uh, I uh, I was really looking forward to touring with Wolf Mother because uh, Andrew was a real sweet guy, and uh, also the rhythm section of Wolf Mother is the rhythm section from the Vines. Our good friend Hamish, uh, yeah, you know, playing the drums. He would always uh, take care of us whenever we were in Australia, and uh, the bass player of the yeah. Vines too. And uh, it was just an incredible lineup, great band. It was going to be. Yeah, Primus called us up out of nowhere just because they were like, we're going to do this Rush tribute and we just want, you know, a really great American yeah. rock and roll band to like, you know, open the show and everything. So it was uh, really flattering to get that offer, you know, almost awesome. two years ago. Uh, well so, deserved. Yeah, well, yeah. thank you. Um, but yeah, it's, at this point, I'm just like, can we just do this tour so we're just, it's behind us now? We can finally move on. I feel like I've been in limbo yeah. for like, you know, over a year. It's nuts. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you've got a lot of bands that sort of, their career was just about to kick off yeah. at the start of 2020, released a great album, getting great press, and then all of a sudden you can't hit the road. And now that album's almost two years old, and you're like, what the fuck happened to my career? Yeah. So you've got, you've got to feel for some people in this industry. So I feel for a lot of people in this industry, but particularly bands that, you know, hadn't had a chance to establish themselves mm-hmm. and basically start again. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've got your your hand in multiple pots because uh, you're, you know, booking, I mean, you've been booking bands for a long time, but uh, you rarely meet a a booking agent that actually got in the van and knows what it's like to, you know, drive around some crazy ass routing that somebody who doesn't, you know, get in a van for a living created for them. You know, that's, I I don't think a lot of people understand that. Like, how come your tour routing so crazy? It's like, it's because the guy that booked it has never gotten in a van and driven anywhere in his life. (laughs) So so you're one of the rare ones, man. Uh, uh, How how do you approach booking? I think that's how I fell into it. I mean, uh, I got into a conversation with uh, a booking agent called Paul Ryan that still works at United Talent Agency and books some of the biggest bands in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and He also he, used to be in Cradle of Filth. He did indeed, yeah. First album. And um, he said, I mean, I knew Paul from back then anyway because after he left Cradle of Filth, he joined a band called The Blood Divine who toured Sporting Orange Goblin in about 95, going back a long, long time. So Paul and I go back a long way. Um, but he... He, he said to me, he's like, have you ever tried your hand at being a booking agent? Because I've done tour managing and stuff and looked after, even like bands like Scorpion Child came to Europe and I yeah. tour managed there. Um, and then he said, yeah, have you ever considered being a booking agent? And I was like, no, no, not really. But, you know, it was something I knew I'd be able to do because I'd, I'd booked a lot of shows for Orange Goblin back in the early days and things and I kind of knew how to set up a show at the end of the night and, and what, what money was due and that sort of stuff. And and then the more I thought about it, I thought the more I thought it makes sense. Is like I've played every toilet up and down the UK. I've been to pretty much most clubs and festivals around Europe. So, you know, it's a, it was a no-brainer, really. And then I spent five years at UTA, as you well know. Um, and last year when COVID struck, I, I'd, I'd met this guy called Jules Tenowth and he floated the idea of starting our own booking agency down here in Cornwall. And with everything on hold and the pandemic at, at, its, at its peak, we, we kind of felt like the world has no no time like, like the present. And, and here we are, set it up. Uh, managed to take a lot of my clients across with me from from UTA to Route One Booking, Fu Manchu and Earthless and Orange Goblin, obviously, Voivod, um, 
Shooter Jennings, uh, nice sort of mixtures of, of genres and and uh, styles. And you know, touch wood, it's, it's going great. Um, and as the world's opening up, we're getting busier and busier, and and it's a uh, it's a really exciting venture to to, to actually be my own boss for once. <laughs> <laughs> Do you still uh, get like? bands that get cranky at you uh, with the routings or anything like that <laughs> uh, uh yeah, <laughs> yeah they do. sometimes it's unavoidable because you get bands that they want to they they want to play every festival there is and and uh their demands are sometimes a little bit unrealistic so you have to kind of uh, do your best to accommodate that but sometimes it's unavoidable if you've got to do an overnight drive to to somewhere yeah um but you know that was, that was one of the things that used to piss me off when when I weren't booking Orange Goblin tours, it'd be like, you know, you go to a beautiful festival and, and you don't have any time to enjoy it. You yeah. literally come off stage at three o'clock in the afternoon, you've got to get straight back in the van and, and go to the next place. And it's, it is frustrating. Um, and, you know, if, pe- if people don't pay attention to those small details about getting your ride right and making sure that the hotels are booked accordingly and things like that, it, it can have a big impact on, on a, a musician that's you know hanging on to their sanity by a thread as it is yeah. so you've got, you've got to get everything right for them and and that i can relate to that because i've i've been that guy in the band that that needs to get a certain amount of sleep every night or mm. i need to, I need to uh, eat at a certain time during the day so so yeah i try and i try and do my best to accommodate my artist <laughs> as i would expect it to be, you know yes i'm sure it feels like a fool's errand sometimes but uh yeah it's you know booking the states is one thing uh and i feel like you're playing the states too is, is a lot different just because it's one country you know and uh, yeah. i'm sure you have to deal with differences uh but like what, what are the challenges of, of, of booking a european tour you know because i mean that's just so many different countries like, sometimes they don't even speak english you know and things well, like that or, yeah, it's, it's just one. yeah i mean I mean, in the past, it was a lot simpler than it's going to be going forward, especially for us UK bands, because obviously we've got Brexit now where we're yeah. not part of the European Union anymore. Jesus. So it's, that's still a bit of an unknown quantity for us going forward because the government is still in talks with uh, other governments to try and thrash out deals over whether we're going to need to have working permits or visas and things like that. And luckily, the bulk of European countries have said, no, you know, UK artists can travel without a visa or work permit um, for a certain period. And I think it's something like 30 days that you get to spend in each country. And I mean, uh-huh. no one tours more than 30 days in any one country anyway. Right. But, but you know, um, Europe is a challenge in that, you know, you've got um, different currencies and different um, uh, border controls, things like that. Um, but, you know, size-wise, it's not, not much different to um, the US. And as you know, you know, you, you've got some drives in the US are, are retarded like, like they are here in, in Europe. So it's that's, that's a case of the, the agents trying to get it right if you've got a... Yeah, you know, the only place you could possibly stop off for a show is Luxembourg. It might not be the best idea to do, but you know, you try your best. I mean, I I love touring Europe. I love that sort of the, how busy you can be in such a small space of time. Mm-hmm. You can you can get away doing sort of ten to twelve shows in Germany. You can do five or six shows in France. You can do three or four in Spain, and then you get to sort of see a bit of of everywhere you go. 
And then, you know, if, if you do, your, your routing sucks, but you have to fly into somewhere like Greece to do an Athens show, it's, it's only like two hours on a plane, and then you fly back and meet up with your bus again. So anything's possible here in Europe. It's it's uh, it's quite quite straightforward. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I say, the, it, it's always been quite quite easy for me being from here and it's it might be different being an american looking into what europe is but that's how we feel about the states we've always thought it's like much more logistical headache than than touring here so um i don't know like i say brexit's gonna throw up throw up a few curveballs but other than that i don't, <laughs> I don't change it <laughs> god well ben uh, thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate your point of view and uh, always loved your band and uh, it's always a pleasure to to meet you i can't wait to see you again and I, I just i got a feeling it's gonna well, happen next year i hope maybe maybe hopefully yeah. but we'll see. Big feeling is very mutual mate big fan of your band big fan of your podcast and uh look forward to seeing you and uh meeting up for a drink very soon hell yeah man well, well i always ask my uh my musical guests if they want to play any songs there is there an orange goblin song uh you you want everybody to hear i'd love to play anything you want but uh yeah, yeah. Uh, there may be a few people who don't know orange goblin so let's give them the song that we always end our set with every night and uh play red tide rising absolutely
Thanks so much for tuning into the highway this week. A big shout out to Reverend Guitars, Railhammer Pickups, and Earthquaker Devices. If you liked what you heard, you can follow where you can follow, subscribe where you can subscribe, and if you want to go one step further, you can support us on Patreon at The Highway with Kyle Shutt. For a few bucks a month, you can help us keep this party going, get early access to next week's episode, and even get yourself a shout out. <laughs>